Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen and back in studio this week with me is our good friend and Heritage Foundation expert, Emma Waters. Emma, welcome back. Hi, Virginia. Thanks for having me back on. Always good to have you. And I'm also so excited because today joining the show for what I believe is the second time is our friend and social media manager at Independent Women's Forum, Brianna Howard. Brianna, welcome to the show. Hi, Virginia. Thanks so much for having me. I think uh, I, I still like geek out about this all the time because I just think it's the coolest thing. But we had you on a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, to talk about the fact yeah. that you were had just been elected mayor of your small town in Pennsylvania. Just blows my mind. I'm like, you're so young and you're a mayor of your town. It's so cool. How is yeah, that, that going? Yeah, so fun. It's going great. Yeah, it was so fun to join you and talk about um, running and all that good stuff. But um, yeah, it's been going great. I'm just still very honored to serve my town and it feels a little surreal every day. But yeah, mm -hmm. it, is, it is fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have, you have a little fan club with me. <laughs> hey, it's an I'm inspiration. Your fan too, so. <laughs> I'm like, maybe one day I'll run for mayor. <laughs> yes, but uh, oh man, we have so much to talk about today. I'm, I'm really excited. It's going to be a fun show. But before we dive in, I, I do have to just sort of address the elephant in the room this week, which is that Donald Trump announced on Tuesday night that he is, in fact, running for president in 2024. There was no huge surprise there. Everyone kind of knew it was coming, but I think some people were still like, is this really happening? Well, yes, it is. It's really happening. Uh, but also big news on Tuesday was that Taylor Swift released tickets for her uh, her new tour, the Eras tour, and sales went so crazy that it pretty much broke Ticketmaster and they were like posting all this stuff online but like we're trying to fix the problem and uh, headlines everywhere about Taylor Swift and crazy ticket sales so I was like you know I wonder on Tuesday night I'm like who who was googled more Donald Trump or Taylor Swift I mean Donald Trump is announcing that he's running for president again historic moment and Taylor Swift is selling tickets for her her new tour um, so any guesses on who who won out Google Trends on Tuesday night? I have a feeling it was Taylor. I mean, I think that um, President, former President Trump picked kind of a bad day to announce. He didn't realize he was going to be overshadowed by <laughs> by the gonna... Internet's favorite person alive, Taylor Swift. So <laughs> well, it's so true. And who is using the Internet except for Gen Z? And Gen Z is not going to pay attention to Donald Trump's announcement. So true. So I was leaning towards Taylor Swift, but also the rage machine never disappoints when it comes to Donald Trump. <laughs> so I'll balance it out and say that I think he got the most uh, searches. Well, so there was about a 30 minute period from 930 to about 9:45, where he he did spike and he had a moment where he was above wow. Taylor Swift. So that was right when he announced. But apart from that, within the past, you know, all all day Tuesday, Taylor Swift was way 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 above Donald Trump. Now I I will say in fairness, I did check, and Taylor Swift constantly trends higher than President Joe Biden. Um, then Ron DeSantis. So she's always getting all of the love on Google. Um, so it, it's not uncommon that she trends higher than politicians. But I did think it was pretty funny that um, Donald Trump got about 15 more minutes of love than Taylor Swift on Tuesday night when he was announcing. But apart from that, it was all Taylor. So there you have it. Wild world we live in. But we we really do have so many great topics to get to. So 
without further ado, up on today's Problematic Women, we are discussing the final results of the midterm elections and how single women may have played a pretty big factor in determining and deciding how those midterm elections turned out, especially the fact that uh, Democrats maintained control of the Senate. Plus, the Senate voted Wednesday on the misnamed Respect for Marriage Act. So we explain why the bill should be called the Disrespect for Marriage Act in reality. Also on today's show, a New York City mother was arrested for allowing her 10-year-old to get a tattoo. But you can have a double mastectomy to change genders. We break that all down. Also, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week as always. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen and encourage your friends to subscribe. It makes such a huge difference. All right, let's get to it. Some votes are still being counted after last Tuesday's election, but we know for certain that Democrats have maintained control of the Senate and Republicans have won back the House. So what exactly does that mean? First, it means that not a lot of legislation is actually going to get passed in a divided Congress. Bills can be introduced, but it's really unlikely that there's going to be uh, any partisan legislation that can make it through both the House and the Senate within the next two years. But the fact that Republicans have taken back the House does mean that there can be real oversight and accountability for the Biden administration really for the first time. The House can launch investigations into the Biden administration and look more closely at things like the crisis at the border. Uh, But this election was not at all the red wave that so many Republicans vowed that it would be. And many GOP members, they're asking, why is that? And, well, one reason appears to be single women. So CNN exit polling reports that married men voted Republican 20 percent more than they did Democrat. And married women voted Republican 14 percent more than they did Democrat. And then even single men voted 7 percent more Republican. So this just leaves us with single women. The data shows that single women voters sided with Democrats 37% more than they did with Republicans. Wow. So as a single woman myself, my question is, why? Why are single women so drawn to Democrats more than any other voting bloc? The Federalists, they wrote a great piece discussing this. Um, the author, we're going to leave this, uh, this piece in the show notes, but the author writes, single women who lack the protection and, and security that a husband or father provides are likely to look elsewhere, such as to government, for the security of their interests. Do you all think that that's an actual accurate analysis? I think so. What we're looking at here is the nature of patriarchy. So whether you like the word, whether you hate the word, and it certainly had 
better or worse connotations <laughs> used that we are not endorsing here. Um, what it does refer to, though, is that there's a certain structure to nature, to the world that we live in. And I think that what this article is pointing at is that when women are disconnected and not in healthy relationships with their fathers, with other men, with their family, they will look elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So if you look even at AOC, right? So she's an avowed um, enemy of the patriarchy. But who does she turn to to cry and complain about the patriarchy? She turns to Joe Biden or Supreme Court justices who were primarily male. And in every single scenario, you're seeing women either turn to the men directly in their life who know them and have their best interests at heart, or they're turning to men in high positions of power who may or may not actually care about them or know them. So I think that he's spot on in the direction that he's pointing here. Hmm. Brianna, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think that's interesting, Emma. I I kept seeing this trend on TikTok, which, yes, I'm on TikTok, I admit it, but um, (laughs) it was kind of like people were voting, especially it was like the single woman crowd, right? They were taking TikTok saying, oh, I just voted to cancel out my dad's vote or my grandpa's vote or some male Mm -hmm. in their life saying like that was what they were proud of. It's like their vote was canceling out someone else's vote. And I actually made my own TikTok, which I thought was funny. I was saying like, (laughs) I'm so glad I get to vote and I don't have to vote to cancel out anyone else's vote because it's not about that. It's not about overturning or like, you know, domineering over your, your parent that you might disagree with or the male in your life that you might disagree with. But I also think when it comes to single women and how they vote, a lot of times, you know, I'm also a single woman in Virginia. I do have a house, so that impacts my economic decisions a little bit differently. But mm-hmm. oftentimes single women don't, um, you know, run a household in the same way that like a married woman would. Um, so that if issues of inflation might not be impacting them as importantly as it is for other, you know, married couples with children. So I think that might be part of that sort of economic um, factor as well for, for yeah. voting. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, and I was interested in the way that this piece is written in the Federalist because it's written by a male, Christian Winter, and he he doesn't he doesn't blame the women for this issue. He actually kind of goes after men in a very nice way, but he he's really uh, using the article as a way to call men higher and say, "Hey, where are the areas that maybe men in general in society have failed women to where women feel like they have to turn to the government for the support, for the protection that we are as women innately wired for and and looking for and seek and desire. Um, so I I think I, I would just be curious to hear from you all, like, has has the government, do you think that the government has so grown to the state where it's it's taken over the role of protector and provider in the minds of women because men are not stepping up to the plate. Brianna, I want to start with you and get your thoughts. Yeah, that's so interesting. So honestly, you know, I have a different perspective than someone who's like an apolitical person, right? Because sure. I'm tuned into these issues. But I guess I think, you know, if someone, uh, just putting myself in someone else's shoes, if you would consider the government to be a whole functioning government that seeks to protect you, I guess, yeah, if you were a single woman living alone in a city and you think about who is offering me the services that I need and the protection that I need as a citizen, I think it kind of makes sense that they would, you know, replace that patriarchal person or, you know, look for safety from a functioning government. However, I do think, you know, me as someone who is, does not feel that way, um, I would say it's ironic considering the government is basically in, you know, in different states, right? We're defunding the police. We are deprioritizing safety in communities. So Mm. I think it's actually opposite of what this, you know, this idea that a woman might have, of how the government would offer protection to a person as a citizen. Yeah. Emma, as a married woman, what is your perspective on this? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. So I've talked to a few of my other friends who are married, similar age, similar ambitions in politics, and we all have a very similar experience where we talked about uh, being very driven and very motivated, which are good things. Um, but having this hardness and an edge to us, I think, while we were single. So feeling like we had to take care of ourselves and we're really here, um, just us against the world. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that we had bad relationships with our parents per se, um, but when you are living on your own and you are pursuing a very high impact career, there's just a lot that comes with that. Mm -hmm. So it's been really interesting. One of the best compliments I received from my maid of honor uh, on the day of our wedding a couple of months ago was she looked at me and she was like, Emma, she was like, I, I love the man that you're marrying. I love that you're getting married. But my favorite thing in all of this is that since you've gotten engaged and like to this process of getting married, there's just this softness and mm. this warmness about you that mm. has really come out. Um, and she was like, just this feminine grace that it wasn't that mm. I was brusque and rude and arrogant beforehand, but it just brings something out more in you that I think is truly feminine and truly beautiful in a way that I just didn't have on my own. And if you're looking at a generation of millennials who were maybe 40 to 50 percent unlikely to get married, Gen Z that's not looking that much better yet, it makes sense that then this sort of uh, just this sort of roughness and discontent would come out and it would come out in a lot of different areas. Yeah, that does make sense. Well, and it's funny, Emma, because as you're talking, I'm I'm thinking about a conversation I had recently with my sister um, who is married, but I'm single. And it it's funny how as a single woman and Brianna, you might relate to this, but you sort of swing back and forth in different situations between like, I am strong and powerful. I can do it on my own. And a little bit of like, oh man, <laughs> this would be really nice to have a guy around. <laughs> I struggle with that every day, especially now we're getting like feet on top of feet of snow. And oh, I'm like, gosh. Oh, I wish I would just come snowblow my driveway. And thank God I have a neighbor, actually, my, my neighbor's husband, who is so good to me and will come and shovel Aww. and everything. But I'm like, it is true. Like, you you kind of crave that, like, masculine figure in your life mm -hmm. um, when it's when it's optimal. But then sometimes I'm like, yes, I'm a homeowner. Like, I got this. I'm going to go, like, you know, do all these things in my house. And then I'm like, oh, wait, actually, um, I'm going to call my grandpa. Like, I'm going to call my yeah. dad. I'm going to call my neighbor. But, yeah, and I almost think, like, this, this principle, it does apply to how we think about like a larger scale of voting and of how we pursue like you know perceive the government so mm -hmm. it's very interesting it's almost like this like psychological layering of it how we is. perceive like the common role of gender almost yeah totally totally yeah. struggle is real with that christian's article i think hits at the idea of build it and they will come mm. um so the and this goes back to like a jordan peterson argument where he talks about how like the sort of like archetypes we have of like god the masculine figure creating the world mm. And then like mother nature, the feminine fills the world with beauty, right? Or like men are called to build the house, but women have the giftings to make it lovely and make it functioning and take the money that they earn, right? To like actually produce good things with it. So I think you have that idea where he's pointing and basically saying like, hey men, like you can point and say feminism is the problem, but if you're not actually building a world that women want to live in, yeah, then we don't have anywhere to start. So if you don't build a world that is good, then women are going to look elsewhere for it. And yeah, so like thinking about like even this generation, like I would say that a lot of the 37% Democrat plus mm. voters 
were probably raised um, either by full-time working parents or something to that effect, which means they're in daycare full-time and then public school, private school full-time, which means that a lot of them probably haven't actually lived in a home that was really satisfying or full or chances are they came from a broken home where the father was never present um, or rarely present um, and they saw their mom struggling to work and provide and to care for herself because the men in her life had failed her. And just statistically, that's probably a high number of them. So a lot of these women, I don't think have even seen the possibility and it probably seems too good to be true. But instead of putting yourself in a position to be vulnerable to a man who could hurt you and leave you as many of their fathers did, they're now fighting and trying to protect themselves in ways that they think are going to be more reliable. Yeah, yeah. Our listeners didn't know they were coming to a counseling session today, but here <laughs> we are. <laughs> we're all like thinking about our past and like things are coming up. It's good. It's good. Uh, but I think that that is a perfect transition to talk about the subject of marriage and the role that marriage plays within our society. So we're going to talk about some pretty controversial legislation that uh, is essentially looking to kind of redefine marriage in many ways. But first, before we get to that, if you are enjoying this episode of Problematic Women and you want to find other like-minded podcasts, then look no further than She Thinks. She Thinks is a podcast production of the Independent Women's Forum, where Brianna works. And every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern, host Beverly Hallberg is joined by policymakers and thought leaders to cut through the spin and bring you facts on the issues that matter most. From the economy and education to foreign policy and everything in between, She Thinks has you covered. And if you can't wait for that next episode to drop, you can listen to past episodes at iwf.org or you can search for She Thinks Podcast in your favorite podcast app. All right. Well, on Wednesday, the Senate voted on a piece of legislation known as the Respect for Marriage Act, but it can more accurately be called the Disrespect for Marriage Act. The House already voted on it, uh, and it passed earlier this year in the House. Now, Emma, I know that you have been researching and writing on this legislation for a while. Can you just explain what exactly the so-called Respect for Marriage Act really is? Absolutely. So the Disrespect for Marriage Act that was voted on on Wednesday repeals the Defense of Marriage Act um, that would affirm that marriage is between one man and one woman. Now, we know that since Obergefell, the Supreme Court decision um, that legalized gay marriage uh, was enacted, that same-sex marriage for two men, two women has been allowed and totally on the table. So what this piece of legislation then does is affirms that any two individuals, regardless of race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender, sex, etc., can get married and that it must be recognized and protected by the state. Additionally, it never actually defines what marriage is. It simply says that marriage is whatever a state recognizes it to be. So on the one hand, it's incredibly vague in its understanding and definition of marriage. And on the other hand, um, it's completely changing the way that we've thought about marriage for the past couple hundred years in our nation. Mm, wow. So um, the bill, it, it doesn't actually specifically define marriage. And, and some would argue you know, that's a good thing. The federal government shouldn't be telling people what is and isn't marriage. What's you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's one of the biggest lies that our generation has bought into that there's such thing as moral neutrality hmm. that you can that you an individual an institution certainly could simply say we don't have a stance on this thing. 
Um, and it's just a total myth. What like by existing, an institution or an individual is going to have a positive or negative view towards something. And so the government, rightly, as they are called to protect the well-being of their citizens, right, and advance those in our nation and abroad, um, has defined marriage as one man and one woman and has fought to protect that, to not only protect the religious values of the millions of Christians and Muslims and Jews in our nation, um, but also to protect um, children and what's best for children. And so one article that was just published with Daily Signal goes through piece by piece talking about how marriage with a mother and a father is essential for the well-being and development of children when it comes to their emotional, behavioral, psychological, and even their educational outcomes. And on top of that, the studies that we've done that show that same-sex marriage um, for children has either no significant difference or is maybe better for children are largely based on parents who were in the same-sex marriage self-reporting on behalf of their children. Mm. Um, So they're not reliable at all. And we have a lot of other evidence that then points and says that actually, no, this situation is not good for children. And then by extension, right, would not be good for our nation because our our nation is made up of the children who grow up in it. Um, So I think that the government absolutely has a right um, and should be interested in this definitional question of marriage um, because it pertains not only to our very private lives, but then to the very public um, value and formation of our nation. Yeah. So like you pointed out, under Obergefell, same-sex marriage became uh, you know, legal at the federal level across states. Um, so what, what does this change, especially in regard to nonprofits, to communities of faith? How, how would this affect um, you know, your, your church that you attend or your local crisis pregnancy center, um, institutions that hold to a traditional definition of marriages between one man and one, one woman. Yeah, and this is where the messaging um, becomes very unreliable. So the reason that Democrats are pushing for the Disrespect for Marriage Act is because they're suggesting that same-sex couples could have their benefits or their rights infringed upon if something were to change. Now that we voted on the Respect for Marriage Act, um, nothing for same-sex couples changes. That remains the same. Everything that they had under Obergefell stays. But like you're asking, the thing that is very different is that all of a sudden religious individuals, religious organizations, pregnancy care centers, other faith entities will now be forced to stand against this redefinition of marriage that now applies to them or could apply to them depending on the situation and stand up for a traditional view as opposed to that. So this means that the religious liberty and rights of a lot of these groups are now going to be under attack and there's going to be a new level of threat that they'll have to protect themselves against going forward. So this could mean adoption agencies who want to place children only in homes with a mother and a father because they recognize the good that is for a child will now come under attack from people saying, well, no, like legally marriage is between any two individuals. So if you deny me, this is actually a form of discrimination. Um, And so you're going to see a lot more tension and a lot more legal battles trying to tease out um, the dimensions of this question. Yeah. Brianna, why do you think that the um, that the timing of this vote is interesting one week after the election? Yeah, I think the timing is really interesting given that it's a lame duck session. You know, we have some new senators coming in um, in in the next Congress. So I think that, you know, it's it's a priority for Democrats to pass this legislation potentially. Um, 
but at the same time, they're doing it kind of under the guise of midnight, right? Like, like people are kind of tuned out to what's happening in Congress following the election. So I think that there's hopes that, you know, we'll pass this and it'll just, we'll just go on with, with our lives. Yeah. Yeah. People won't really be paying attention. Exactly. Um, well, Emma, thank you just for kind of breaking that down and sharing because you read so many different stories and pieces and everyone has an opinion. Uh, but thanks for just breaking it down a little bit. We are moving from one controversial subject right into another, um, talking about tattoos, parental consent and mastectomies. So on Sunday, the New York Times published a piece about a 10 year old boy who got a tattoo in New York and then his mother was arrested because of it. The tattoo was the boy's name in like big block letters on his forearm. And while some states allow minors to get tattoos with parental consent, you have to be at least 18 years old to get a tattoo in New York State. And that's regardless of whether you have a parent that says it's fine or not. So the boy's mom, Crystal Thomas, she was arrested, as well as the tattoo artist, Austin Smith. The whole article really focuses on, you know, tattoos and where, what states allow them, what states don't, which states um, mandate parental consent, which states don't. Because um, state laws really do vary greatly all across the country as far as how old you have to be in order to get a tattoo. But that's not really the focus that we want to take today. So this piece quotes pediatrician Dr. Cora Bruner saying, and quote, a tattoo is a permanent mark or a symbol you are putting on your body. And I don't think kids under 18 have that kind of agency to make a decision, end quote. Meanwhile, in New York, California, Washington, and many other states, minors can take body-altering sex hormones and even have a double mastectomy all before they turn 18. And what's really interesting here is the hospital that Dr. Bruner works at also encourages puberty blockers and sex-changing hormones for children, mm. starting as early, the puberty blockers at least, starting as early as age 9. So she comes out publicly saying that you can't get a tattoo because children can't take, make this sort of decision. But the rest of her department seems to think that changing your gender is totally fine. That's not a problem. Brianna, I want to get your, your take on this. Yeah, it just feels very ironic to me that when it comes to this issue of tattoos, right, which, you know, it's not necessarily life-altering for a child. It's, it's upsetting for some, right? If you see a kid with a tattoo, it's a little abnormal, but... Um, there's no consensus around um, gender ideology in the same sense, right? It's like, oh, well, if we see a child with a tattoo, everyone's up in arms about that. But you see a child that's had a double mastectomy um, and, and it's like, oh, well, they're, they're receiving gender affirming care. So I think it's just it's just very interesting how the two sides of this coin are playing out, um, you know, especially on a united front from schools and teachers and medical professionals. Like they all seem to be in agreement about tattoos are bad, but um, double mastectomies just fine. <laughs> Yeah, it, it feels like there's such a, a disconnect. Granted, I'm, I'm sure that there are many people out there that think, yeah, a kid should be able to get a tattoo if they want one. But to have some of the, the same people who are advocating and saying a child should be allowed to take cross-sex hormones or even go as far as having a double mastectomy when they're still a minor, um, but they shouldn't be allowed to have a tattoo because that's permanent. It's, it's like, wait, what is the disconnect? Why why are these things viewed as so different? How can we put those in separate buckets? No, it's so true. And this is what's so wild. If you get a tattoo and you hate it, you can actually get the tattoo removed. And while it's painful and it takes a long time, it's possible. A lot of adults have gone through this. 
If you remove healthy breasts or reproductive organs, you can never get them back. You can have false ones put on, but they will never work the same. They'll never produce um, the same outcomes as your natural ones would have. And you'll always know that they're made from synthetic material. So these are just like night and day issues. Yeah, yeah it's almost like if you um, if you think about the line in the New York Times piece where she says that the, the nurse called the police. Like if you put it in the opposite perspective, right? Imagine a school nurse calling the police on a student that started receiving hormone therapy. Like Mm. that's almost unthinkable because there's no, you know, this is not ingrained in people's minds where this is a harmful thing for a child versus the automatic reaction of that school nurse was, I'm going to call the cops because this seems like child abuse, but that's not, we're not thinking that when a child is having a double mastectomy or even just receiving hormonal treatments, like, you know, it's, it's crazy. Brianna, your team at Independent Women's Forum have done some great work on this issue. Yes. Um, so we actually have um, our Identity Crisis series, which covers the the parents, some moms who've had, you know, come face to face with gender ideology and how it's impacted their families. And we've also had some really, really powerful firsthand testimony from detransitioners, from women who actually went through with hormone um, therapy and with gender affirming care, which, you know, they've, they've come out on the other side and they're t- telling their stories. And it's just very powerful. And we also had a doctor, Dr. Miriam Grossman from New York, who is a child um, psychiatrist. And so she's telling her story about how, you know, she's combating this issue in the medical community, but she's, she's really a dissenting voice and it's powerful. So I encourage everyone to check it out. Yeah. I'll be sure to put the link in the show notes for that. Cause it is so, so powerful to hear. I think the personal stories is such a game changer. Cause you can read in the news maybe about like, Oh, this happened here, here, but to see people's faces and hear how it's affected them personally, their family is really, really significant. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great series. Okay. I, before we let you all go, I I do want to ask, and I am curious, kind of zooming out and thinking about the whole, um, you know, gender transition surgeries and treatments for kids. Have we reached a point in society where maybe as a whole, we've just kind of given too much power to kids, to youth? Um, You know, if you think about a hundred years ago, or 200 years ago, I felt like kids were like hardly thought of as people, which was bad, and I do not at all condone. And so I think we've made a lot of progress on childhood development and realizing, you know, how how much kids need to be taken care of well. But have we swung too far in the direction of saying, well, if, if a kid says it's okay or says that they want it, that we're like, oh, well, they're their own person. They know. Yeah, I totally think so. And ultimately, what we're looking at here is an abdication of the responsibility of parents, right? Mm. It's the parent's job and duty to care for the emotional and mental and physical well-being of their children and to make these sorts of decisions that they're not old enough to make on their own. And so I think when we're looking at this sort of empowerment of kids, we're seeing a couple of different things happen. Um, First being that in our attempt to push back against hierarchy and authority and to attack the natural order, um, we're now attacking ourselves because you can't attack the world in which you live without it harming you. Um, And so we are now looking at kids and rather than saying like we in our wisdom and our age and in our role as parents are here to help guide you. Instead, we look to them and we're like, no, no, you tell us where to go because we don't want to infringe upon your rights. But really, it's just 
lazy parenting or fearful parenting or just bad parenting maybe um, because ultimately kids are not old enough to be trusted to make those decisions and it, it, it's not fair to put them in that place where they're making decisions that are going to harm them or at least affect them long term and then one day they'll look back and say like it was your job to protect me where were you when I needed you and a parent saying well I just wanted you to follow your dreams is not going to be good enough and we're I think we're starting to see that we're starting to see kids who had gender treatments now file lawsuits against the doctors that performed those surgeries saying, I was a child. My brain wasn't fully developed yet. Why Why didn't anyone question the decisions that I was making? Why didn't anyone let me know that there was another option? Um, and I think, tragically, I think we're going to continue to see this playing out. Um, it, it really started first in Europe and now America is starting to see these cases inc- at an increasing rate. Um, but for Emma and Brianna, thank you both so much for joining the show today. This has just been a joy and a pleasure to have you all and love having both of you on. Thank you. Thanks so much, Virginia. It's good talking with you ladies. Thank you. This is great. Five days a week, two episode formats, one mission to deliver the news you care about and analysis on the biggest issues facing America. The Daily Signal podcast brings you two episodes every day in the same podcast feed. Each morning, catch interviews with policymakers, leading experts, and conservative activists as we discuss some of the greatest challenges facing our country and offer solutions for a brighter future. And every weekday at 5 p.m., we bring you the top news of the day. These are the headlines you care about. Subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss out on our morning interviews or evening news. Now it is that time once again, our favorite time of the week here at Problematic Women. Time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And the crown goes to Erica Anderson. Erica is the author of the new book, Reason to Return. Why Women Need the Church and the Church Needs Women. I was really shocked to learn from Erica that in just the past 10 years, 16 million American women have left the church. 16 million. So Erica has taken the time to ask why and to consider whether or not women actually benefit from the church as an institution. And Erica, she joins me on the show actually this Tuesday to talk about the book, to talk about her research, to talk about women and the church. And I just love the fact that she has delved headfirst into this really big topic. Let's go ahead and play just a little bit of a teaser of our conversation. In the the culture, in American culture, church has just become a less primary part of how we live our lives. Much of American history has been kind of ingrained in cultural Christianity. And I think we're seeing some of that die away now. There's a lot more of a progressive um, sort of wrapping around how lives are lived. And so folks that are not truly committed in their faith or not as serious about it, just don't see a need to kind of keep up that facade anymore in a lot of ways. Now, what I will say about many of these women who are leaving, um, they're not leaving their faith. They're not, you know, deconverting and becoming atheists. That's kind of a myth that is sometimes out there. Um, They are women who still would say they value their faith. They believe in God. They pray regularly, and they may even desire a deeper faith. 
um, but they have become disillusioned by some of the church experiences they've had. And I believe that they're really just looking for some guidance and need a little bit more education on what it would mean to come back and why they should come back. So huge congrats to Erica for being our very problematic, problematic woman of the week. Be sure to catch our full conversation on Tuesday. I uh, I just love the fact, like I said, that that Erica decided, okay, we're seeing this mass exodus of women from the church. Let's have a conversation and figure out why. Catch the show Tuesday morning. You can listen maybe on your flight as you uh, fight the crowds at the airport, home for Thanksgiving, or as you're driving home. We won't have a show on Thursday next week because of Thanksgiving. Lauren, Kelsey, Emma, all of our amazing problematic women, they're going to be enjoying some turkey and some family time. I'm headed to Boston to spend Thanksgiving with my parents. I know my dad and I We'll definitely be playing a very competitive game of Ticket to Ride. I hope that you all have have some fun board game time with family. Just enjoy good food, rest up. It's going to be so nice to just have have that time with family. It's always so special. We hope that you all enjoy it. But again, uh, be sure to catch the conversation on Tuesday with Erica Anderson. And in the meantime, please don't forget, as conservatives, we so need your support in the podcast world. And we always appreciate when you leave us those five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference for us, and it really is helpful to hear your feedback. So thank you for every one of you that has done that. And if you haven't, we would love to hear that feedback. All right, have a great rest of your week, and we will see you right back here on Tuesday. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.